Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Jason Rosenbaum. Janet Napolitano has charted a story career in public service, including her tenure as University of California president, Arizona governor, and U.S. attorney. But Napolitano is perhaps best known for her time as Secretary of Homeland Security, experience she details in her new book, How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11. Napolitano is in St. Louis this evening to speak at Maryville University, and she joins us in studio right now. Welcome, Madam Secretary, and thank you so much for your time this afternoon. I, I understand from talking with you, you have some St. Louis ties, and you're not unfamiliar to this area. That's right. My mother's family was from uh, St. Louis. Uh, she grew up in Kirkwood, and uh, then my grandparents ultimately retired to Ellisville. So we spent uh, many summers in St. Louis. Well, it's a great region, and we're happy to have you back. Uh, part of your book details your observations about homeland security and, and immigration policy in the present day compared to your experience. I'll start off very simply. What are your observations about how the Trump administration is handling immigration policy? Well, I think um, uh, I'll talk about the wall uh, because that is the focus of the Trump administration policy. And I'll just say flat out that a wall is a symbol. It's not a strategy. Um, you cannot seal the southwest border. It's 1,940 miles long, very um, different kinds of terrain. There's public lands, there's private lands, there's sovereign Indian nations along the border. Uh, it's our number two trading uh, partner, so thousands of vehicles need to go through there every day through the ports of entry. So a strategy, rather than a wall, a strategy involves more manpower, technology like ground sensors and tunnel detectors, air cover across the entire border. Like and drones, for example. Like drones, exactly. And um, then strengthening uh, the actual ports of entry. And the question I've always wanted to ask for people that are proponents of the wall, I imagine as Arizona governor and as U.S. attorney, when you dealt with drug interdiction issues, people can dig under walls and dig tunnels. I mean, wouldn't that be kind of a problem, even if you built this wall, that you know, me, you know, gangs could just build tunnels under the wall, basically. Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, there, there, uh, there are tunnels. Um, most of the illegal narcotics entering the country actually come hidden in vehicles through the ports of entry. Uh, but when I was governor of Arizona, I used to say, show me a 10-foot wall, and I'll show you an 11-foot ladder. So <laughs> either way, a wall won't solve any problem that we have. What, what is your reaction, though, when you see American voters get viscerally um, into the idea of a wall. Because I've gone to some Donald Trump rallies. I hear the chants of build the wall. And I think that everyday people hear the president talk about this and even shut down the government because of this. And they feel like a real emotional connection to what he's doing. Yeah, so uh, this is where politics interferes with real homeland security. So real homeland security is evaluating risk, uh, dealing with risk pragmatically, uh, doing everything you can to protect the safety of the American people, realizing that there are no guarantees, so you're in the risk reduction business, and speaking honestly and forthrightly with the American people about what works and, and what doesn't. And I'm afraid we've uh, kind of fallen into uh, some political traps here, and, and uh, you know I think it's going to take us a while to dig our way out, so to speak. Another aspect of President Trump's immigration policy that has 
um, elicited a lot of controversy is the detention of families. Um, I'm interested to hear what your observations are of, of that part, because I know that one of the things that the current Homeland Security uh, Secretary has said that a lot of these policies started under the Obama administration, which a lot of people in that administration have pushed back against. So I have this I have the source right here. I'd like to I'd like to hear your your thoughts on on that particular part of immigration policy. We had no zero tolerance policy. We had no policy on separating children from uh, their parents or their families at the border. Um, there were some rare instances where separation occurred when, for example, a child was found traveling with an adult not related to them, uh, where human trafficking was suspected or something of that sort, but nowhere near the policy and the, and the kinds of uh, disruption uh, that we saw at the border over, over the summer. You talk a lot in your book lamenting the inability to for Congress to come up with a comprehensive solution to immigration policy, which has been elusive during the George W. Bush administration, the Barack Obama administration, and, and I don't see that happening under a divided Congress. Why do you think it's so hard to come up with something? I, I have my own theories, but I'd like to hear from you about why there's no consensus on this issue. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think... Um, uh, Immigration has always been a tough uh, issue in the United States, and, and, and we've had waves of anti-immigrant feeling from the 19th century when it was anti-German uh, to the early 20th century when it was anti-Irish, anti-Italian, um, uh, uh, anti-Jewish, um, and, and now uh, anti-Hispanic. Anti uh, and, and what happens each time there's a wave of migration is uh, people still come. Uh, ultimately, they integrate into our country. They make our country stronger. Uh, um, but, uh, uh, you know, immigration politics, uh, you know, emanates from some of those anti-immigrant um, sentiments. And, uh, and, it's, and it's, in a very, it's a very difficult issue. I'll, I'll give you that. But it is one that permits of a solution if reasonable people will get together. Missouri has a relatively small percentage of Latino residents compared to Arizona, for example. And I think because of that, you see statewide candidates in both parties, including Democrats, really try to showcase how um, hardline they are on immigration. Whereas I, I see even Republicans and the state that you used to lead, like John McCain and Jeff Flake, really try to take a much softer edge to that. Is it just because a lot of the lawmakers in Congress don't have Latino or Hispanic representation that is as robust as you know the states like you used to lead, and that could be one of the reasons there could be a deadlock on this issue? Well, you know, per, uh, perhaps um, you know I do think uh, uh, some familiarity with the border really helps because you understand the border can't be sealed like a Ziploc bag. It's it's a zone. It's it's not one kind of line. Um, uh, so I think some familiarity with just the geography of the place uh, matters. Uh, and then, yes, of course, uh, I, I think the more uh, people uh, see uh, communities from, who are coming from different countries and see how they're working and uh, how they're putting their energies in, in, into the country, uh, uh, you know, the less adverse they, they are. You know, 
it's it's weird to talk about your book by talking about another book, but I read uh, former Attorney General John Ashcroft's memoir a few months ago, and he was talking about coming up with very impactful policy during the the aftermath of 9-11 and kind of developing very important things during a crisis situation. You were Homeland Security Secretary when, for the most part, the nation's at- attention had turned toward the economy and the economic collapse. I, I'm, I'm really curious to hear what dynamic that, that created during your tenure. Did it make it easier to formulate policy, given that all eyes weren't necessarily on you? Or was there still a lot of residual attention to the your department and the issue of security, even though the Great Recession was, was kind of the main issue? There was still considerable attention uh, paid to Homeland Security. You know, the creation of the Department of Homeland Security was the largest reorganization of the federal government since the creation of the Department of Defense in the aftermath of World War II. Um, And so, uh, you know, a lot of our work was integrating these previously separate 22 agencies and plus a few new ones that got created out of whole cloth. Um, and and uh, putting uh, uh, them under one umbrella, a common mission statement, a common set of priorities, so that whether you came from the Coast Guard or FEMA or the Secret Service or Customs and Border Protection or ICE, uh, everybody knew what we were striving for, which was uh, to have a safe and secure homeland where the American way of life can thrive. What would you say was your most difficult experience as Homeland Security Secretary? <laughs> there may be more there, than there one. Were, there were lots. Um, uh, uh, well, we've talked about immigration reform and, and, and our inability to get that done, and that, that was a, a real disappointment. Um, you know, uh, uh, one tough time was Christmas Day of 2009 when we had the underwear bomber. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, this was an individual who... Uh, had bomb uh, uh, bomb material in his underwear. Got on a plane in Lagos, uh, Nigeria. Uh, transferred planes in Amsterdam and was uh, en route to Detroit um, and tried to ignite the explosives in his underwear. Once the plane got into U.S. airspace, and uh, you know that should never have happened. And um, in, in reverse engineering, uh, you know, how did this guy get on a plane with explosives sewn in his underwear? We realized there were some real gaps uh, in our aviation uh, system globally, and we set about to uh, cure those gaps. But uh, that was a tough time, no doubt. I think whenever we talk about homeland security, the, the, the question of security versus liberty comes into play, especially when you're talking about, like, going through airport airport checkpoints and having to like take off your shoes or take off your belt or go through um, x-ray detectors and other fancy machinery. I'm sure that you encountered a lot of that, especially when you were talking with lawmakers about policy or just everyday people with policy. Is that just going to be kind of an internal struggle going forward about trying to make sure that we are doing all we can as a country to protect against terrorism versus not being so locked down that the freedom of movement kind of comes to a halt. I'd be interested to hear what you have to say about that. So there's a a constant uh, uh, struggle between security and uh, civil liberties and and privacy. And um, uh, what 
the way we try to address it is to say, look, privacy, civil liberties, that's part of the American way of life. So uh, if uh, whenever we're instituting a new practice or a policy or a new technology, we need to build in from the get-go the concept of privacy by design. So, for example, those airport body scanners, we needed those because of the kinds of threats that we were getting and the continued efforts to get uh, explosives onto airplanes. Um, uh, but um, the contract that we let um, for that machinery quickly moved from uh, a, a, a total body image to just a silhouette. Uh, it had protections in it that the person who actually sees the silhouette is not the person who's standing at the, the scanning machine. Nothing can be downloaded. Nothing can be transferred. So we built into it uh, this concept of, uh, yes, there's going to be a momentary look to see if there's anything that requires a secondary inspection, but uh, but uh, we're going to do everything we can to protect privacy in the meantime. I guess it's been about 18 years since 9-11. The title of your book is How Safe Are We Since Then? How, how safe are we since 9-11? What gaps do you think that there are still in the Homeland Security apparatus in this country? Well, I, th I think we're actually safer, much safer in many respects than we were prior to 9-11. Um, uh, for example, the notion that a foreign national can come to the United States, go to flight school, uh, get on an aircraft, take over the cockpit, weaponize the airliner, and fly it into an iconic building like the World Trade Center or the Pentagon, that really can't happen anymore. Um, uh, but Why? there are new, uh, well, because we, uh, we did a number of things. Uh, uh, for example, we keep better track of foreign nationals at our flight schools. Uh, we hardened the cockpit door on, uh, on airplanes. Um, we instituted a rule that uh, if your luggage goes on a plane, you have to go on the plane with the luggage. You can't just get a suitcase uh, into the cargo hold. So, uh, you know, some of those very pragmatic steps taken immediately have, have really eliminated that threat. Threats continue to evolve. And in my book, I point out uh, three that I think are key right now. Um, one uh, are, the, are the threats from cyber and cybersecurity. Uh, one are threats from mass gun violence, and one are threats related to global warming and climate change. Uh, all three of these affect the safety and security of uh, the American people. Do you also delve into kind of your backstory in this book and your rise throughout Arizona politics? And there was one issue in particular that caught my attention that uh, you and uh, former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arapaio had an unlikely kind of alliance during one of your campaigns. You weren't political allies, obviously. And I'm mentioning this because he recently came to speak in St. Louis County and it caused a big stir because of his reputation. Um, was there a time you and Sheriff Joe were on the same page on something? I'd be, be interested to hear about that. No, we weren't on the same page, but uh, uh, Arpaio um, had been a former uh, FED. He'd been a former DEA special agent in charge. Um, and uh, when he was elected sheriff in Maricopa County, Arizona, uh, um, Maine Justice in Washington, D.C. opened up an investigation into conditions at the jail. Uh, I was the U.S. attorney in Arizona at the time, and I, and I 
and I helped, and my office helped broker uh, a, a civil consent decree uh, with respect to uh, those conditions moving forward. Uh, and I think Arpaio always thought that I, I didn't play politics with that, that uh, you know, called it as I saw it and was a straight shooter. So he said um, uh, to my campaign staff, look, if anybody uh, misstates uh, Janet's record as U.S. attorney, uh, I'll, I'll go on and straighten him out. And uh, my opponent was getting ready to put out a very misleading and ugly ad, and uh, Arpaio uh, lived up to his word. Are you surprised with what he how his political persona has evolved and how he's become kind of like a con, like he's become very controversial among the left, but he's become kind of a folk hero among Donald Trump supporters. Does that surprise you at all? Yes. Um, uh, you know, when I when I first met Joe, I was introduced to him by Dennis DeConcini, who was the Democratic U.S. Senator from Arizona, and he and Joe were good friends. And uh, you know, Joe was always a bit of a, a character, but uh, his anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric and his, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, absolute, um, almost abuse of inmates really evolved over time. And I and I think he started reading his press too much as well. We only have about forty seconds left. If you had one message to provide to the American people about the state of homeland security that you could say in a very short <laughs> amount of time, what would it be? I would say. Uh, we're safer now, but every American has a part to play. Well, Madam Secretary, I want to thank you, and I want—I hope you enjoy your time in St. Louis. I know, as you mentioned, it's not the first time you've been back, but uh, the Secretary is the author of How Safe Are We? Homeland Security Since 9-11. She'll be discussing her book tonight at 7 p.m. at Maryville University. Thank you very much again for joining us today. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. We have a staffing announcement. Don Marsh resigned as host of St. Louis on the Air on Wednesday, March 27th. We want to thank him for his more than 13 years as host. Until a permanent replacement is found, reporters and producers will fill in.